Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life and career in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by behavioral scientist and psychology researcher Belinda Craig. Welcome to the podcast, Belinda. Hi, thanks for having me. No worries. Now, I'm going to hazard a guess that in the same way we often have to clarify that we're not that kind of doctor... You probably have to clarify, not that kind of psychologist. Yep, that's right. So um, the area of psychology has the profession, the practice of psychology, or what people know as psychologists. Mm -hmm. But psychology as a discipline is much larger and includes the study of human behavior. So you can be a psychology researcher, but not a psychologist. And I'm one of those psychology researchers that's not a psychologist. All right, but your friends probably still come up to you asking for life advice Um, and... Sometimes. Lie down on your couch. And yep. Definitely when you're in the Uber um, and people ask you what you do, yep. they definitely go down the psycholo- psychologist path um, and assume that I can read their minds, um, which I could not. That's not my thing. Um, so that's the thing you get as a psychology researcher or a psychologist. People always say, oh, I bet you're reading my mind right now. <laughs> and we're not. <laughs> so the psychologists we see on TV that... You know, have appointments with people lying on lounges and telling yeah. them their life stories. They're your clinical yeah. psychologists. Yep, that's right. So there's clinical psychologists, but there's other kind of psychologists that practice with people. Mm-hmm. There's also like uh, sports psychologists who work with um, elite athletes to try and improve their performance, organizational psychologists who work in um, organizations to try and like, smooth workplace change or help people recruit better candidates. There's health psychologists, there's educational psychologists, there's all sorts of mm. psychologists and they're all psychologists as in the profession. Um, but then there's this whole other side, which is the discipline of psychology, the research side, um, where we use uh, the scientific method or experimental and survey research to try and understand why we are the way we are, what we do and um, how we think. So Mm. that's the, if you're, we're in the psychology building right now and the majority of people in this building are doing that research side of things rather than the practice side of psychology. But it would inform the practice side a lot, right? Yes, that's right. So um, psychology is a science and a profession, um, but the profession is, works under an evidence-based practice model. So um, the scientist practitioner model is that you train people to be able to understand science and the scientific method and be critical um, consumers of research. And that when you become a psychologist, that you can give the best um, psychotherapies or practice in the most evidence-based way so that you're giving good treatments to your clients. So that's the model we work under. So in your beginning of training, you start with learning about the discipline of psychology, the research, how to do um, experiments, what statistics is, um, so that when you down the road, although I didn't, when you become a psychologist, that you can read papers and interpret them and implement them in a evidence-based way. And so having done psychology at university and I teaching psychology at university, your students coming through knowing that there are fields of research psychology and sports psychology and all that, or are they looking for the, what do you call it? I guess the professional, you know. I think here a lot of the students at UNE are coming through with the goal of becoming a psychologist mm. and some of them get distracted along the way and become psychology researchers. Yeah. Um, I think some of them come in with a false understanding of what psychology is going to be. Um, (laughs) In what way? They think that all of their studies are going to be about the counselling skills and the psychotherapies and the psychological disorders. And that's a part of it. But we also do perception and emotion research and social psychology and they have to learn all of it. Mm. Um, So some of them find that surprising or they also have to learn statistics so that they yeah. can understand the um, the methods used to um, be the evidence base for the things they're going to do in practice. And they don't, some of them don't like that. They don't expect they'll have to do maths again um, when they are becoming a psychologist. So some of them come in with a good understanding of what's ahead of them and others not so much. But in our first year, you get a bit of a spread of everything. So you get a good taste right up of what you're going to be doing for the next three or four years before you start your specialist practice training. 
I mean, there is that cliche about psychology students that it attracts a lot of people who come there to sort out their own minds a little bit. Yeah, that's, I wouldn't, you know, anecdotal evidence is not (laughs) always correct, but I wouldn't say that's incorrect. Um, You get a big range of people in psychology. So we do have some of those that come through having personal experience Mm. with um, a psychological disorder or working with a psychologist. Um, But we have other people too that just are interested in humans and Mm. why we are the way we are that come into psychology. So very diverse um, students, student um, population. Now you said you're not really able to read people's minds, but (laughs) I'm going to guess you might be pretty good at reading people's faces. See, I guess I should be because I do do research on emotion perception and how um, this, the movement and the structure of our face is interpreted as other people's feelings, but I'm, I never really think about it when I'm just in a social interaction. Um, so maybe I've gotten really fine grained emotion recognition skills from looking at lots of emotional faces when I design my experiments, but I'm not doing it in a conscious way. That's All for right. sure. So you're not going full CSI and no. looking at how many times no. people blink to see if they're lying um, or not. Not, or... not lie to me quality over here. <laughs> um, yeah. Although that's like part of the broader field that I work in is that um, the the science behind that show Lie to Me is based on a model of emotion perception and emotion expression. Um, that is probably the most common one adopted in emotion perception research. Although the micro expression part where there's like flashes of expression that cross people's faces and then you can read what they're trying to tell you but they're concealing from you <laughs> has limited evidence although the person who developed that is making a lot of money right now so <laughs> he's doing pretty well out of it um yeah, yeah but it's definitely patchy I, I feel like this stuff would be so hard to measure I mean, how easy is it to measure when someone's happy? Is you know a thirty degree incline of this cheek or something? What? Yeah, that is that's the the model that they okay. work on is that um, they broke down the face broken down the face into a series of action units or facial movements mm. that a face can possibly make. So the face has over forty muscles. Most of them are just for expressing emotion um, and for blinking um, and for eating, but mostly emotion expression. Um, and they took all of the ways the face can move and gave them numbers. So there's like action unit one, action unit two, and so on and so on. Um, and the combinations of action units are mapped onto expressions. So AU6, action unit six, and AU12 are a smile, a genuine smile. <laughs> um, and so that is the, this model of um, emotion uh, expression is that if these two action units are present, then that means that person is feeling genuinely happy Mm. um it kind of works to an extent but things aren't that simple obviously it's nice to have this simple breaking down of the face but um there's lots of variability in how people actually express emotions in their real lives Mm. um and these defined action unit based expressions are kind of like prototypes and don't really represent exactly what happens in our daily lives so, yeah, I think it's it was a good model for breaking down facial expression and making it more studyable, mm. more scientific. But um, the the research has kind of moved on a bit. So, but it raises so many questions as to why it's really hard to fake a smile, or why some people might be really good at it. You know, what are what are actors doing to yeah. convey genuine emotions? And yeah, there, there is a bit of literature on that. That there's like a norm, like a a smile that you do in a photograph, and that's just where you um, pull your lip corners up. <laughs> um, you can kind of imagine it. Yeah. Um, but the thing that makes it genuine is where there's an eye crinkle, so you like squint your eyes a little bit and one theory suggests that people can't do that um, on demand that it's it's a spontaneous signal of genuine enjoyment but there is a proportion of the population who can control that action unit or that muscle um but it's a small proportion apparently 
Um, what is that proportionately like? I don't know. High-functioning, deceiving psychopaths <laughs> <Maybe> or something? <laughs> like that, that I, I came across some research recently looking at how convincing people can be when they're trying to show an expression that they're not actually feeling. Yeah. And we're actually really bad at it. So um, there's this little field on emotion deception where they've done like different kinds of studies to try and work out if I pretend I'm happy or if I pretend I'm really sad or really angry, can you tell if I'm lying or if I'm just generating this fake expression? Not really. We really can't. (laughs) Um, Computers can. So um, these, these particular lab did human raiders and also had um, uh, like computer based artificial intelligence um, coding, whether they could tell and, there's signals, uh, signals that the computer can pick up that can tell the difference between genuine and uh, fake expressions, but humans are really bad at picking those um, sing- signals up. Um, so yeah, we're pretty, we're bad at lie detection in general. Mm. We're also bad at emotional lie detection. So yeah, we um, it's starting really to sound really it. hard because not only we're we really bad at faking and conveying expressions we're also just really bad at reading them we are so <laughs> even um the so the the guy that's making all the money off these micro expressions that i yes. talked about before and lie to me um he developed this uh model of emotion perception and motion expression that said there's these six basic emotions so six emotions that can be recognized around the world and are expressed in the same way across cultures um with this idea that it's like an evolutionarily um, evolved way of expressing emotions. So all of our common ancestors use these particular signals and we can just recognize them with great ease. Mm. Um, and there is some evidence for that, but there's like two camps going backwards and forwards fighting over whether that's actually the case. Um, but even in those studies, when you show these six expressions and you just give people six options to select, you'd think it would be fairly easy to tell between um, happiness, sadness, anger, disgust, surprise, and fear. People are not that good at it. Um, the, I feel they like can, mine would probably all be the same. They can I mean, do it <laughs> better than chance, which is where what the comparison was, whether it's better than just randomly choosing one. Mm-hmm. But um, anger and disgust are easily confused. Um, fear and surprise are easily confused. Um, and people are just not actually that good. So people are bad at generating expressions that people can read. Um, and not that great at recognizing expression. So it's not, we're very good at it. I shouldn't say, oh, we're terrible. Everyone's yeah. <laughs> walking around and they have no idea what's happening. Um, as humans are very good at emotional expression, but there's a lot of nuance and we use a lot of context to actually help us. Mm. So when you just have the expression on its own without a surrounding situation, body language, um, a story of what's just happened, where we get much worse at it than when we have all of the, the sort of rich sources of information we do in the real world and humans vary so much yeah that's going to have a huge impact on how emotions are expressed and the context they're expressed in definitely yeah so there's cross-cultural differences in uh, expression so even though there's these basic expressions that are supposedly expressed in the same way across cultures there's um what do they call them accents cultural (laughs) accents of expression and there's also um um, there are display rules. That was what I was trying to remember. So there's rules about when it's appropriate to display certain expressions mm. and the ways you express them. So um, in some cultures, it's rude to laugh out, like in front of people. So yeah. like um, I had a Japanese teacher who was from Japan um, that was living in Australia and she always would cover her mouth when she was like happy or <laughs> laughing. Um, so there's these sort of culturally specific ways of expressing emotion. So that makes it hard. Um, not only are we sort of making guesses sometimes when we're looking at people of our own culture, but when there's these like differences across culture as well, it's easy to um, misinterpret expressions or to um, be culturally inappropriate in displaying them as well. So it's, yeah, there's a complicated world out there of emotion. Um, and not just that, but also the faces themselves, the other signals on the faces can be um, incorporated into the judgment. So um, things like the, the race of the face can influence how quickly and easily we uh, recognize an expression just because we have other associations with that social cue. So we might see um, an art group member, um, there's 
pretty good evidence that on average people have a little bit of a positive association with their own group and a little bit of a less positive or more negative association with other groups and just having that sort of split seconds little judgment of positivity or negativity can speed up your judgment of seeing a positive expression Mm -hmm. or slow down your judgment of a positive expression so there's all these different aspects all playing a role at the same time when we look at um, emotional expressions. I have so many questions about that. <laughs> I mean, how do we know anything about how much of it is learnt as opposed to evolutionary history of being surrounded by people that look like us? Yeah, with the race stuff. Yeah. That one is, it's a bit of a big question, I guess. Um, the With race, people actually haven't, being around people that don't look like them much until quite recently. So there's not good evidence evolution, like evolutionarily speaking that we've been exposed to people that are quite um, visually distinct. Like Mm. we are now Um, because like over evolution, people would stay in their small groups. And like, if, even if you moved, you'd come across another small group, but they'd probably be quite similar to you because you're like geographically near Mm. and you in your lifetime wouldn't just cross the ocean and see someone very different. Um, but we do do that now. So with the um, with race, there's more evidence that we have a predisposition to liking our own group, whatever that group is. Um, race can be one or ethnicity can be one, but it's not a specific – there's no specific evidence as far as I've seen that we are evolutionarily prepared to not like – a racial group but we might have a bias towards liking our own group so that could be a race group or it could mm. be like my university or um people in my profession or like my friends um we could we can we can make these sort of distinct social groups um in lots of different ways and that seems to be more where that's coming from a lacking of the own of, of the self and the, the group when you're discussing this type of research <sighs> Is it tricky because in a you know, progressive, open, diverse society, talking about racial differences can rub people the yeah. wrong way a little bit? I guess, I guess so. It, and, and when teaching it as well, like with mm. first years, they're a mixed bag. You don't know what you're going to get. And we don't and want to admit that we might treat different yeah. people differently. I think that's it's interesting because when you have done psychology and you've studied psychology, you just have learned it so much that Mm. we have biases and most people have them. Um, They happen really quickly, not necessarily within our control, um, that we have these positive little bumps towards liking our own group versus another group. Um, But when you haven't heard that idea before, it can be kind of confronting um, because you don't, like most people don't think of themselves as prejudiced or Mm. racist. um, Well, it's not. It's not even prejudice or racism. No, it's called implicit prejudice. Uh Um, that's kind of the, the area. Um, but it's just, I guess the way I think of it is it's like a, something that you didn't necessarily choose to have, but it exists (laughs) and it's an implicit thing. So it happens really quickly without us choosing, but most of our behavior isn't that like we can control how we behave towards other people. So even if we do have a little nudge towards, I like this person better than that person because of the color of their skin or how their face looks, we don't have to act on it. So mm. it's not like it, if we're, it's probably better to be aware of it because we know we can then know that we need to be a little bit careful when we're around people that are different to us yeah. to be mindful that we shouldn't just make a snap judgment and say, I like this person better. Yeah. Like if we're hiring someone, we shouldn't just be like, Oh, that guy. Um, <laughs> we should like look at the evidence and make a deliberate and considered choice. And then in those situations, the little nudges one way or the other, we have a chance to overcome them. So it and is the, a bit of a sticky subject, but. But it's important we're not putting any sort of value judgment on those biases. They're just a thing. They're just a thing. And they they seem to largely reflect like a sort of cultural um, situation. So in, um, in, even in America where um, 
black people would be like a minority group that's discriminated against. Many black people also hold the same prejudices as white people. So they have no reason to dislike their own like mm. ethnicity, but because it's kind of a sort of pervasive um, or stereotype that exists in the media and stuff, they can pick it up too, even though they have lots of reason not to. So it's not something that um, always makes perfect sense. Um, but it, it does exist and we have them for all sorts of things like with age, with gender, like both men and women like women better as like with this little nudge. Um, it's called the women are wonderful effect. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, age. What else? Yeah, minimal group membership. So in psychology, we make experiments where we just create groups that have no meaning and mm. it works too. So saying you're in the orange group and you're in the green group um, people in the orange group will like orange group people better. So yeah. yeah, it's, some of them are stronger, like the ones that are sort of culturally um, ingrained or like uh, stereotyped or in the media a lot, they can become stronger than like the orange or green group. Mm. But um, yeah, we do. It makes sense. Like the world is complicated. We need to come up with ways that we can navigate it without having to make conscious decisions about everything we do. And this is one of the consequences of that. Yeah. And it does play out in our personal lives. You know, the, given the choice of all these different people around us, we tend to form friendships and relationships with people pretty similar to ourselves, yeah. right? Yeah. I guess that's through opportunity as well. Like hmm. if you work at a uni in a school of psychology, then you're going to end up with psychology researcher <laughs> friends. Um, <laughs> It's the same as anything. Like lawyers are going to end up with lawyer friends. Yeah. Um, we do end up with, around people that are like us. Um, so that that can make things difficult if there's other sort of systematic societal level things that make particular people be in particular places. Mm. Um, means you're going to have less exposure to other people that aren't like you. And that does happen. Like people end up living around people that are like them. Mm. Um, when a refugee moves into a new city, they're going to look for a community and end up around people like them. Like that's that humans like security and safety yeah. and familiarity. So it does happen. Um, yeah, it's very complicated. So we know that things like race and age and gender can affect how we perceive emotions. Mm -hmm. But I was uh, surprised to find out that even things like beards can affect how you perceive emotions. Yes. And this is something that's kind of personally relevant to me because I, I vary in my beardedness and I want to know what effect it might be having right. on my yes. relationships. It's a big decision, beard or no beard. Mm -hmm. Well, not for me as a woman, <laughs> can't grow one. So I just go with no beard. But um, yeah, so we found in a study that um, I published with some collaborators uh, earlier this year that beards facilitate recognition of anger and um, being clean shaven facilitates recognition of happiness. Um, we also found that beards seem to conceal sadness. So when oh. you're sad, it's a bit harder to see your sad expression. Um, but when we looked at sort of self-report ratings of how people felt about um, the faces with beards and without beards with the different expressions, they also thought that the um, bearded men were more pro-social so more likely to be going out and doing good things in the world so right. it didn't seem like people didn't like people with beards there was something about the beard that's maybe enhancing the masculinity or the dominance <laughs> of the face that was giving a little uh, assistance to the angry expression and hiding some of the sad expression but it didn't translate into like oh we hate all of the bearded people it wasn't like that <laughs> and these effects are kind of they're pretty small so the way we did this experiment was using response times so looking at how quickly um, and accurately people could make a judgment of an expression so we showed happy and angry um, bearded and clean shaven faces and got people to press buttons to label them as happy and angry as fast as they could. And that's where we found it. So just a little extra fastness, a little extra speed mm. to the beard angry and a little extra speed to the clean shave and happy. So little bump. Yeah. It's not going to stop you from being able to express your emotions properly if you have a beard, um, but it might make you seem a little bit more dominant or a bit angrier in a, in a situation at that sort of split second judgment mm. level. Are, are they, do you think they're genuinely seen as angrier or is it like, do they, does yeah. the beard mask some of the nuance so it's a bit more skewed as either angry or not? I guess, yeah, it's not angrier. It's just more easily 
recognized as angry. Mm. So we didn't measure, we did measure um, masculinity and dominance. They're seen as more dominant um, and more masculine. So having a beard is dominant and masculine, um, but not angrier per se, just easier to recognize the anger. When you're doing these studies, you're presenting people with pictures. You're not sticking angry bearded men in a room with people. No. So (laughs) in this study, we had photographs of men who had um, volunteered to shave off their beard or grow a beard. Um, So um, my collaborator, Barnaby Dixon, um, at the University of Queensland, he made the uh, stimulus set but a long time ago when he was living in New Zealand. So he had people come into the lab, clean shaven, um, and he took photos of them expressing the different emotions. And then they came back every couple of weeks as their beard grew in and he photographed them again. So we have the same men um, posing the same expressions, but with facial hair progressively growing in more and more. So we just compared the clean shaven to the full beard um, photographs, but he does have photos with more like light stubble and then more heavy stubble and then the full beard. But um, but were they specifically pulling angry and happy faces? Yes, they were. Okay. So these ones, the, the, the nature of them was based on that guy that's making all the money. Um, (laughs) the, the action units that he defined Mm, as a different expression. So they're very prototypical, um, happy and angry expressions, not necessarily self-generated or, um, generated in response to something anger provoking or happy provoking Mm. so yeah that is a limitation of emotion researchers there's lots of ways to get someone to show an expression but there isn't a right way so you can have like Mm. method actors making them based on their generating their own memories of an anger angry event (laughs) or you can have people watch videos and then snap them when they're seeing something happy or you can have the like action unit approach or you can just tell people make a happy face and let them do whatever they want. Mm. Um, and databases exist with faces using all of those different approaches. Um, and yeah, there isn't a right one. So we're just <laughs> managing with this sort of ambiguity about people recognize them well, um, like above chance or better. Um, so you can, when you get these databases, they often come with a spreadsheet of raters having given their their ratings of what the faces look mm. like so you can select ones that have high agreement across raters of expressing a particular emotion um so there's a market for this online you just jump on and i guess get a catalog of faces yeah. i have like a whole like little yeah. hard drive <laughs> okay, full of them <laughs> how does one become a face <laughs> in these studies in, um it, it varies so yes. some of them are actors mm. um some of them are people that were at the shops on the right day (laughs) when someone was giving out money to be in a face database. Um, Most of them are university students. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of them are just like general community members that like participate in research or help in research. Mm, Yeah, all sorts and databases. I feel like I'm hearing a lot of gossip about beard research in the past couple of years. Is it like in vogue? Talk about the function of beards. I think um, one factor is that there's a local researcher that really loves beard research. (laughs) And I guess if you're wondering whether you should have a beard or not, Barnaby is one of the leading experts in the field on beard research and does have a beard. So you could take that um, as maybe advice. He's like got all the evidence and decided to grow one. So (laughs) um, I think that helps. But also I think beard research gets fancy or popular when... um, lots of people are growing a beard yeah. and I think we went through a phase recently of the hipster beard um and more people having grown a beard so I think that maybe that there's like self-relevance also helped be more popular yeah it, it does raise questions about what effect it might have not even between cultures just temporally you know, like you yeah. know 60s and 70s you know Barry Gibb was the hottest man on the planet and their beards were in and then 80s and 90s they disappeared again yes. and there is some research on that um, beards become more sexy when they're more rare and less sexy when they're more uh. common. Um, so there is an effect of prevalence or it's just how many beards you see around. Um, I don't think it's a super big one. There's also just individual differences. Some women just really like them and some women just don't. <laughs> um, and 
Yeah, I, there is there is some fluctuation based on how common they are. But it could be like that the pendulum effect, whereas yeah, they become too, too common, common, then yeah, yeah. I think that's probably a thing. It's like fashion, right? Yeah, it just comes in waves, and, and it'll come back around well. again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the mullet was once in, and it's not anymore. So I guess beards are a bit like that. Is, are you suggesting that it's only a matter of time before mullets come are back, back again? Maybe. <laughs> Anything's possible. <laughs> I feel like I do see them every now and again, and yeah. particularly confident, beefy-looking dudes hanging around the Just gym. Pulling it off. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we'll see. But yeah, beards follow the fashions as well. <laughs> now, I also just learned something about you that we have in common. Oh, yes. So we both have backgrounds working in spider-centric labs. Yes. Yes, that is true. We do. <laughs> Both not spider researchers, no. but having been around spider research. But dabbled in this sort of mm. stuff. Yeah. And as anyone that's listened to this knows that I'm a big fan of spiders and don't think that people should be afraid of them or worried about them at all. <laughs> Your thoughts. Go. <laughs> How do you feel about spiders? I don't mind spiders, I yeah. guess. Um, having grown up in Australia... I guess you have a particular standard of what is a big spider that's different from other places <laughs> in the world. Um, so my definition of a big spider is like a hand-sized spider, mm. whereas other people's might be like a five-cent coin-sized spider. Um, yeah, I think, well, I guess in Australia it makes more sense to be scared of spiders, like logically, than anywhere <laughs> else because we have all of these poisonous ones. Um, but interestingly, the rate of spider phobia is similar across um countries like australia where there's lots of poisonous ones mm. and places like sweden where there just aren't any so yeah I, it's an interesting one because it doesn't always make sense that people are scared of spiders but it's a very common fear that people hold and that raises the question of why because the actual threat posed by them is pretty low we mm. should be more afraid of just a car driving past yes we should um, Why are we afraid of spiders? It's a good question. Um, there are a few different theories on why, um, but in general, all of the theories are based on the idea that spider fear is something we learn. So it could be learned through having a bad experience with a spider, or it could be through um, our parents being scared of spiders and telling us spiders are bad or showing us that it, they're scary by reacting yeah. in a fearful way around them. Or it, c it can even be like through culture where spiders are the scary thing there's like the um, Jaws music happening, duna, 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 and then there's a big spider. Yeah. So there's lots of uh, ways that we can learn this fear. But on top of that, there's this theory that um, we're evolutionarily prepared to learn uh, that spiders are scary or spiders are bad um, compared to other kinds of animals like fish or birds or other things that are threatening like mushrooms that were poisonous mm. or more recent things like cars or guns. So there's this um, field of research looking at whether, um, like trying to elaborate on whether there's good evidence that we have this evolutionary, evolutionary preparedness for learning this spider fear. And there is some evidence for it, um, but it's one of those areas that's still ongoing and it doesn't always work out in the in the favor of the evolutionary yeah. preparedness, but then sometimes it does. So I think there's probably something to it. Um, I mean, it makes sense when you look at how uh, ready we are to share our homes with things like dogs. But that, not spiders. <laughs> because we have an evolutionary history with dog and we're actually, you know, at, at a genetic level, there's things in there telling us that dogs are our companions. But we don't have those same relationships with... Not with spiders. Mm. I guess spiders also don't give much. Like, dogs give those loving eyes. I like, know. give them pats. They're if very... you get up close to a spider, <laughs> They give cute. you the loving eyes. Yeah. They especially like give them a pat. The little jumping spiders. I talk about them a lot. They're the puppy dogs of the spider world. They just want to be friends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's probably something to it. The uh, The other animal that goes in that category is snakes. Mm. Um that we seem to learn the association between snakes and bad really easily as well. And then at one time, spiders fell out of the the model and just snakes were there. Um, and I think, I don't know, I don't know where it's up to. It's, it's like, it started off 
where it made sense and everything was going that way and then more evidence came out and then snakes were in and spiders were out and <laughs> I'm not exactly sure where we're up to now but um yeah it's it's a very it's I think it's even more common than snake fear so but I guess spiders are also kind of around more yeah than snakes in most environments mm. Mm. and then there are people that just uh, break the mold and are absolutely obsessed with snakes and yeah them crawling over themselves yeah and... my old lab um some researchers like one of the old postdocs and my old supervisor they did a study looking at experts um mm. so mo- most of the research is more around the fear side but there's also um an attention side to this area where they look at how quickly we can um, move our attention towards a snake or a spider. So they show people uh, arrays or like groups of pictures and look at how quickly they can find the spider or the snake in a, amongst all other things on the screen. And they were looking at, I think it was what they, they were doing. It could have been something else, but I think it was attention-based um, comparing uh, experts who knew which ones were poisonous and which ones weren't and just us regular or maybe mm. this regular person who doesn't know which ones <laughs> are scary and which ones you should be scared of and which ones are just harmless spiders and they did find differences between the experts um they because they could tell a difference they mm. acted in a different way than the people like me who just don't know which are the scary ones and which are the good ones yeah, yeah so there, there is something to having expertise um that changes how you react around them yeah um And like, you don't have to develop the fear. Like if you have lots of chances to have pleasant or not or neutral experiences around spiders or snakes, then doesn't mean you'll necessarily get this learning that they're bad. Um, And that's like the mechanism uh, that they use to try and get rid of spider phobias is a learning procedure, um, usually along with other stuff too, but a learning procedure where you have chances to have non-bad experiences with spiders so being in the same room as a spider and nothing bad happens maybe even getting closer to the spider um getting closer and maybe like touching it with a stick or holding it in your hand and having those experiences with no negative outcome Mm. to teach you a new association um that spiders are not bad so that you can have you'll have this you'll still have this original memory that spiders are scary but you can have this other memory too that you can call on that spiders are okay. I remember hearing a story about a museum that had a big spider exhibit on. And the first thing as you walked into the exhibit was this, there was a projection on the floor of all these spiders crawling around and it was motion sensing. So when you walked across the projection, all the spiders ran away. That sounds cool. <laughs> Clear a pathway and it was great. But the first day the exhibit opened, so many people turned up that just would not enter the exhibit because it was too scary because they couldn't walk across fake spiders on the ground yeah it's funny how it doesn't even have to be real ones that people can be just scared of fake spiders on the yeah. ground yeah some of the research my old lab did sometimes they just have like a dead spider like a um i don't know what you do with the insects when you kill them but you know the ones with the pins mm-hmm. Um, in the lab at the same time as the people doing the experiment or like a toy spider and that was enough for some people to just like be really uncomfortable or scared um which doesn't make sense to me but i don't have a spider phobia but yeah (laughs) people it it generalizes well to things that even like most spiders aren't even dangerous that you encounter and then these are definitely not because they're dead and people are (laughs) or a toy and people are still scared so yeah it's an interesting one we call things phobias because they're irrational. Yeah. Right. If it was a rational fear of something actually dangerous right in front of you, mm. it's not a phobia. Yeah. I guess the phobia also has it impacts your daily life aspect mm. to it. So if you're just scared, but you still get on with everything you need to do, then it, it doesn't reach like the, the clinical definition of a phobia. But if you can't leave the house or you don't go on holidays because you're too scared, yeah. that's when it gets problematic. Obviously, I've spoken to a lot of arachnologists on this podcast. Makes <laughs> That's what sense. I do. And I've been surprised at how many of them turn around and talk about how they first got interested in spiders because they were terrified of them. Yes. And then they went to university and started learning about them and finding out how fascinating they were. And I guess that makes sense because suddenly it's they're forming that positive yeah. relationship. And mm-hmm. they, they all say that... Um, it's almost like overcoming that fear was a large component of 
developing the fascination for them and wanting to spend time with them. Hmm. That's cool. Like so, a self like exposure therapy treatment. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. I and, guess it does make sense. It fits with the like the learning model where we learn these these fear associations, but we can also learn new ones. Yeah. yeah. And I did have one guy that said he actually intentionally went out and did his own exposure therapy because he wanted his his phobia was that bad that he couldn't sit through his lectures. Couldn't you just choose a different insect that's not like a bee? I guess they're kind of scary to you. <laughs> or like a bu- butterfly, that would be a nice insect. Well, people are ter- there are people that are terrified of butterflies and moths as well. I get the moth thing, but butterflies. <laughs> I guess it's more of a like aesthetically pleasing thing like oh look pretty butterfly but moths are usually like fly in your face or... yeah well, these are things i come across having to teach undergrad biology and just bringing out a tray of animals and yeah it's amazing to see what people react to i mean the spiders one happens a lot yeah and it's a terrible cliche are they because... like alive when you bring them out well no they don't have to be they okay. can just be these pin specimens and it, it's a bit annoying because you know i bring out the spiders and Everyone conforms to stereotypes because all the girls go, yeah, spiders. And then I have to have a yell at them for conforming to stereotypes. <laughs> I think I saw when I was um, looking about looking at spider things the other day that some people are doing research on why there's more women that are scared of spiders than men. Yeah. Um, I, there's like a, their theory is something to do with like w- womanly hormones being a fact i'm not really sure about that <laughs> I, don't buy but, um, I don't know anything about it but i don't buy it <laughs> yeah i'm not really sure but there there are people that are looking into that yeah. but i don't know the outcome of that research or whether it's finished or not yeah and i was also amazed at the it was a definite category moths and butterflies and i talked to one person about it and they said it was the scales the fact that their yeah. wings are covered in scales and the scales fall off and something about that idea makes them feel gross yeah. that they might get these scales on them that is a bit weird there is a thing um some people have done psychology research on it that people are scared of things with lots of little holes yeah yeah i've heard of that like the the model is a similar one to um snake and spider fear that it's a preparedness thing where we're like programmed to be fearful of like infection and that infection or like parasites can often do lots of little holes. That's yeah. That's another one. Um, so Swiss cheese just bugs people. It has like. to be like reg, like slightly irregular close together little holes. That seems to do it oh, the right. most. Like if you imagine like something's laid lots of little eggs in you or something, <laughs> that's the, I wonder if I could, uh, it doesn't matter for the radio. You can Google it fear of like little holes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. That's... Lots of little holes together. <laughs> They, it is kind of creepy. It gives, I, like, when I look at them, I'm like, ugh. gives you the heebie-jeebie feeling. I can see that. Mm. Yeah. And there's, yeah, there's definitely something. I mean, we know that certain fears are instinctive, like the way that they make horror movies with particular sound frequencies yes. that are just designed to. Yeah. Part of that can be cultural as well, because mm. we have been exposed to the same sounds around this, like, things that we know are supposed to be scary. It's, it can just be something we learn early on. Mm. Um, I think if you go cross-cultural, like sounds that are associated with particular feelings are different. Um, so what we associate with like happy or sad music is different in different cultures. So I don't know if it like fully works, mm. but like things like screams and stuff, I think that that kind of thing's more like primal maybe than yeah. like a happy piano melody versus a sad <laughs> one. So part of that can be cultural learning as well. And when you're working in these fear labs whatever you call them. <laughs> How easy is it to get participants to take part you in know, these studies? It's surprisingly not so hard. So some of the research that my old lab did involved giving people small electric shocks. Um, <laughs> like in Ghostbusters. I guess so. So um, it, they were pretty mild So the, and the people got to choose the intensity of the shock. So right. it was less bad than when you touch the trampoline and it zaps you much less intense than that. Um, I am surprised because when I did my undergrad, these studies existed in the, so what many universities do is when you're a first year, you participate in other people's research to get some experience of what psychology research looks like. Um, but also it helps the more senior researchers, like the honors students and the PhD students and the researchers in the department to have more participants. So I'd see all these studies with the mm. the shocks in them and that sounded like the worst thing ever to me. So I never did any <laughs> of those studies. And then I ended up in the lab that did the shock studies. Um, but my, I myself didn't do that research. 
Um, but I was around people who were doing it. So I ended up eventually being a participant in this kind of research. <laughs> um, and it isn't so bad, but yeah, many people are just, I don't know if they don't read the instructions and then they turn up and they're like, oh, well, I guess I'll stay now I've come. <laughs> um, but a lot of people are just curious mm. about what this electric shock is going to be like and sign up for it because of that. So yeah, yeah it's not actually so bad, <laughs> surprisingly to me. I remember volunteering for a study back when I was an undergrad as well, that, you know, often they tell you kind of what the study is about, but not exactly so you're not biased. Yeah. And this one, I was told that it was about learning comprehension. And they had us lying down in a scanner machine uh, of yeah, some yeah. sort, and I had a little probes on my head. Mm-hmm. And I had to lie back, and on the screen came up text that I had to read, and it was sort of different levels of uh, complexity. Some of it was really well written, and other ones was a bit wordy, and then I had to answer questions about it in the end. And I started off with all the engaging, well-written text, and then the second half of it was all the long-winded, boring text. Ah, uh, yeah. And so I was sitting in a quiet, nice warm room, lying down on a bed with the buzz of these machines around me, and I fell asleep halfway through, <laughs> through the oh, trial. No. And was it like an fMRI study? Were you actually in a scanner? Yeah, or? like I was in a closed off in a that little would, room. So that they would were expensive. In the, <laughs> well, it got me thinking because they had, they had eye trackers. They're filming as well. And I got out of there, and I was too embarrassed to say anything. <laughs> so I got my free Mars bar or something and left. Yep. But now, in hindsight, I'm wondering. I wonder if they were looking at. Um, how often you fall asleep i think <laughs> reading boring stuff. it's possible <laughs> that they weren't like they might have not noticed that you fell asleep but they probably could have gone and backtracked and see when they look at the asleep. eye tracking data i think they did. yeah <laughs> but also did you have to make any responses like were you pressing any buttons or was it just a looking i had to answer questions at the end uh right fudged my answers. sorry if you did really badly on the questions at the end then they could just know that you weren't worth keeping in the study <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope that happened. Yeah. But yeah, with with eye tracking studies, sometimes they they won't continue to go on if you fall asleep because it, they need to see your eye looking in the right place before the next travel start. But um, I don't know. I don't fall asleep easily, so it was a real freak I guess that accident. Perfect I've done conditions. some of those studies as well, and it, it it's a bit weird. Like at the beginning, you're like, oh, in a tube, but then it's kind of really peaceful. Cause yeah. Well, I got earphones in the ones I did because the machine makes loud noises, so they're protecting your hearing. Yeah. And so it's really peaceful. And you're like in a blanket yeah. usually, and like the world's disappeared. Just the hum of machinery is dim light. It's really light. boring it's, usually. Yeah. Yep. I can understand how that could happen. <laughs> yeah. So if you need a good nap, volunteer for us. <laughs> but maybe study. don't because it's very expensive to <laughs> just to book the the fmri machine at some unis is like 500 dollars an hour not even including if you pay the participant a little bit for coming to the lab um or like paying the research assistants that are running the machine just well, so just having it run because it uses lots of electricity and space and helium and stuff <laughs> costs costs a bit of money well if i can't remember who ran the study but if they're listening to this i'm so sorry. terribly sorry uh, feel free to track me down i don't think you would be the first one <laughs> i'm sure it happens semi-regularly but i've heard that that's a criticism of some psychology research too in that the samples that you use are pretty generic they're yep. sort of 20 30 year old well-educated mm-hmm. middle-class university students yes yeah that is a thing um they're called weird which I can't remember all of the things they stand for. White, educated, mm, can't remember the I or the R. Inner city. Uh, Democratic, that's one uh, of them. Okay. Um, yeah, you'll have to Google it. It's okay. a thing. Um, yeah, but yeah, we do have, for some things, I don't think it really matters. Like if yeah. you're looking at low-level perception-y stuff, probably pretty similar wherever you go. Um, but for some things, it obviously does matter. So even the things I do can change across cultures, mm. um, which is like sort of cognition-y, like a bit more low level, but more social as well. Um, yeah, so it is something that we're aware of. Um, most researchers think about a little bit at least when they're doing their research. Um, but sometimes it's like just hard to get a sample that is fully representative 
even of like an Australian population. Mm. Um, so you do end up looking at convenience samples and things quite often work if if you look in different cultures or different groups. So there was, so in psychology, we had this thing called the replication crisis. I don't know if you heard about it. I feel like there's a that sort of crisis in lots of areas yeah. of research. So every, most areas go through it different phases. Um, but we went through it um, in the last 10 years or so. And from that, some some things have come out of it that are good. And one is these many labs projects. So they try and either replicate findings that already usually replicate findings that are already in the literature, sometimes also extend into like new space, but looking with these massive samples that are from all around the world. And one of them was a mini labs project trying to look at these kind of questions, whether it matters whether you did it in um, California or New York or Sydney or mm. Ar Armadale or Japan, um, somewhere in Japan. And most of the things either replicated or didn't consistently across the labs. So it seems like culture does matter, but mm. for a lot of the effects in psychology, they're either not real anyway, so people can't find <laughs> them, or if they do replicate, they seem to quite consistently replicate across most labs. All right. Yeah, so a bit of a, a thing to worry about, especially in some areas, but... um. It seems like we're more similar than different in a lot of ways. Mm. If people are listening and they want to get involved in these studies and see what it's all about, how yeah. do you do it? So I guess it depends where you are. Um, that most universities have a, a participant pool that's looking for more participants to join. So if you live near a local university, um, if you Google them in psychology participation, you'll find um, pools you can join and you usually get a little bit of money for participating as well. Um, not very much, but <laughs> more tokenary, yeah. but um, still nice to get to, to cover <laughs> your petrol and your time. Um, there's also platforms where you can sign up and do online studies. So um, some people do this already with like market research, but mm. there's ones that um, I think look for participants. So Qualtrics is one. Um, that does panels that are, have Australian participants. There's another one called Prolific that I think also has Australian participants. So if you want to do online research, you also get paid a little bit from those as well. Um, yeah, there's lots of different chances to participate in psychology research, but usually on those pools, you'll end up part psychology research, part market research. So it <laughs> won't always be just helping us university yeah. researchers. Some of it will be for making future profits. Um, yeah. But yeah, there's lots of opportunities out there. And if people want to find out more about you and your own research and what you get up to. I guess if you really want, you can Google Belinda Craig and I have profiles on a few different websites like ResearchGate. Um, if you find any papers of mine you want to read there, I'll, I'm happy to share. Some of mm -hmm. them are already there, but the ones that aren't there yet because they're under embargo, um, I'm happy to share them. So you can just send a, a request. So Maybe not the most exciting thing ever to read the scientific <laughs> write-up part, but um, yeah, that's probably where know. you can find. You might have some fans out there, some groupies. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> that's where you can find the stuff I've been working on recently. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for sitting and having a chat. No worries. Thanks for having me. No problem. And thank you guys for listening. Check us out online at insituscience.com or on social media at insituscience. You can support the podcast on Patreon. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.